Good evening and welcome back to Editing Aloud. I have with me, as always, a panel of South Africa's best journalists, joined this evening by Stanlib economist Kevin Lings. In a week in which really shocking unemployment figures were announced, 29% unemployment, much worse than most in the market had expected. Kevin, why is it so much worse than anyone had really anticipated? Well, I guess that, uh, look, the economy has been weak for some time. If you look at growth for the last five years, it's been well below pretty much 1%. Last year, 0.8. This year, we're expecting 0.6. And I think what happens is when you've got that much sustained low growth, companies over time can't um, cope with the cost base that they're facing. So their top line is under pressure. They need to trim costs. Initially, they trim costs that are kind of a little bit of capex, um, sort of uh, at the margin. Eventually, that's not enough. So they've got to keep trimming and they get to people and then they start to cut jobs and they end up retrenching more and more staff. And we've seen an increase in the number of retrenchments across a whole range of sectors. So it's not just the usual sectors, which would be mining and manufacturing, it's broadened out than that. We've seen financial services, we've seen many of the banks actually closing uh, branches, um, having sort of low intensity uh, retrenchment packages. Um, so I would suppose it's a, it's a range of sectors that are trimming back and we've seen it now reflected in quite some shocking uh, unemployment numbers. The other thing just to mention is, is we've got to understand the, the context of our, our population. So in order to stop the unemployment rate going up every year, we've got to add 600,000 jobs. Mm. So, we've got to, so, so, we, so actually in the quarter, we added jobs, right? Not many, okay, but we added some jobs. We just didn't add 600,000 jobs. There hasn't been a quarter, obviously, in a long time that we've added 600,000 jobs over, over any time period. But that's, that's the obstacle South Africa's up against. Is there not the inability to create? So it's not just job like losses. So, so obviously we've got job losses in, in places. But in order to stop the unemployment rate going up, we've got to deal with the number of people that are perpetually entering the labor market. And that's net 600,000. So they're more or less 1.2 million children start school every year, which means effectively 1.2 million children at some point leave school go to university, but effectively every year enter the labor market, right? So that's 1.2, that's massive. Then you've got a whole lot of people that obviously die and people that retire. The net is 600,000, but it's skewed to young people. So you've got an enormous number of young people that you're trying to absorb into the labor market. Many of those young people obviously don't have necessarily great skills, qualifications, our education system is not good. So companies struggle to employ those individuals. And so when you drill down into the unemployment number, it's the youth unemployment at 56% that stands out as being the really big problem. Because the average age in this country is 24, and 24 is youth, it means that youth unemployment represents millions of people. Yeah. So it's our it most important economic challenge is how do we get young people into the workplace, get them trained up, get them skilled, get them employable. And so it's not, so you've got to tackle this on multi-levels. You can't just say, oh, well, it's companies retrenching. That's part of the problem. It's weak growth. That's part of the problem. But it's also to do with, are we putting, are we giving companies the right skill base 
the right uh, education levels to absorb the individual. But on all of those trends, I mean, there, there are significant uh, segments of the youth population that are, are not educated and will never be employed. I mean, those kind of labels are put up upon them by the statistician general. And that's kind of a sea of hopelessness and potential volatility in a country that's defined as the most unequal society in the world with the highest level of youth unemployment in the world. And given the more one of the more disturbing aspects, of course, is that 18% of people defined as young actually register to vote. So this group of people that which represents the majority of our population is increasingly detaching itself away from investment in political process. There's no opportunity. Um, there's no. There's a sense of hopelessness, and that has societal consequences as well. Whether it's you know in terms of societal discontent manifesting in different forms. I mean, it's a serious problem, and I think it's quite astounding that we haven't seen a kind of as yet response from you know the presidency even over these statistics because they, they represent an unfold crisis that none of us can ignore. Bizarrely, actually, Patrick, the, yeah. the Labour and Employment, and the Labour and Employment Minister, I think, I think the portfolio is now called, put out a press statement headlined, the Labour Minister welcomes the unemployment figures. <laughs> I mean, what kind of political insensitivity is that? But what prospect do you see that this, these but issues do, are do going you, to be tackled? Do you think we're in a situation, uh, Kevin, where um, the structure of our labor market and the strength of the unions vis-a-vis -vis the employers leaves us in a situation where we tending as a country to employ a lot of relatively older people and uh, it's quite difficult to um, I mean if you see the 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 controversy over the um, over the youth subsidy a few years ago one felt that the subscript to this was that this would cost older people jobs and of course, in an almost uniquely South African situation, every job held by an elder person, you know, supports uh, up to a dozen people. Um, so while there may be a case to be made for, you know, let's structure it in such a way that older people fall out and make place for, for, for the younger people. But at the same time, getting rid of that older person um, costs uh, 11 people their, you know, food on their table, because one would think we'd want a situation where, where we're bringing the younger people, uh, notwithstanding the, the sort of relative quality of their education or their skill set, but surely we should be pushing to bringing younger people in. And the thing about employment Ideally, as well... Ideally it wouldn't be a sort of a... Either or. Either or. Want to both. Both. Yeah. Yes, mm. but you'd want to say, because I, on a few visits I had to China, the one thing I noticed in their factories is just how young the people are. And I'm not talking child labor there. But the thing about, the thing about employing young people is that it, uh, it obviously uh, um, you know, uh, accustoms them to the sort of habit of work and all the other kind of habits that go along with that. Um, but that often younger people, you know, by the time they reach age uh, 35 or maybe towards their 40s, they're able to take those skills and the networks that they've gained in employment and sort of branch out and sort of start doing their own thing and employing and, and employing other younger people. So I think that's a structural thing where the inside outside. You know, I don't yeah. know and whether is there it, any, it, what what prospect, Kevin, do you think of addressing of turning this around? 
very little until you get uh, investment going. So the only way to create those job opportunities is you need domestic investment. There's no other alternative. And that investment's going to have to come from the private sector, mostly because the public sector doesn't have money to really undertake massive mm. investment to employ. So the answer is you've got to boost business confidence once you've got business confidence up at a respectable level, which means above the long-term average, then business will start to invest. The Reserve Bank did a study recently where they showed a 1% increase in business confidence leads to half a percent increase in fixed investment. Mm -hmm. So if you can just move in, uh, business confidence a couple of percent higher, you start to impact investment. Mm -hmm. Investment leads to job creation. And then the economy starts to grow and you don't have to make these choices between young and old. I don't think that's yeah. going to be ideal in the Sarvigan situation for a whole range of reasons. What we do know about young people is that once they get their first job, once they get some experience, some training, they are much more able to retain a job or get other employment. Mm -hmm. So when you break down the unemployment problem, you can identify in South Africa that the key problem is getting people their first time job. Now, th that argues that you could provide some sort of incentive or some sort of artificial interference in the market to try to get people trained up. To me, it also suggests we've got to link training much more closely with institutions so that there's a natural intake of internship or artisanship, etc., to get people who are being educated into the workplace while they've been educated. But so that, that's the gap. If we the investment issues, Karen, you're going to tell us that it's a political problem as much as an economic Absolutely. problem, I mean, a problem of political division. I think any investor, I'm, I'm a legal journalist, so I'm just, just speaking out of my journalist. perception, but you want certainty. You want to know, okay, this is what these people stand for, and this is what I'm buying into in effective, effectively investing. The ANC is completely incoherent. I mean, we go, we go from headline to headline to headline talking about the various factions, their various attempts to undermine each other. They have very, very different perspectives on what should happen. You know, we've seen astounding statements about, you know, what should happen to the Reserve Bank, where it's manifestly apparent that basic economic knowledge is absent from certain of the leaders within that party. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a kind of enemy binary between a pro-business sort of pro-capitalist approach um, versus a very heavily socialist, um, you know, this idea that, you know, everything must be nationalized. Where does an investor find any sense of certainty with that? I mean, you would be, you know, anyone who was saying, I want a stable environment in which to invest my money, and I know that there are potential outcomes here, would look at that situation and go, no, thank you. On which subject? I'm going to open up a big subject here when we haven't got much uh, time to go till the break. But... Uh, if you had been at Eskom's results yesterday and heard <laughs> the, uh, the kind of narrative around the results and the appointment of the CRO, let me ask you, Kevin, quickly first, um, and we'll come back to this after the break. Would you, as an investor, have been inspired with confidence? No. So it remains South Africa's single biggest uh, hindrance to investment. So if you wanted to say, I need the business confidence. What should I focus on as my immediate challenge to lift that business confidence? My advice would be deal with Eskom more effectively than you're dealing with it now, mm. which means you've got to convince local companies that electricity supply will be, will be consistent in time, and you've got to convince local business people that you're not going to have to keep handing over more and more money into this endless pit within Eskom. 
If you can do that, you'll naturally raise confidence locally and internationally. What I saw yesterday certainly doesn't raise that confidence level, suggests we are not on top of the problem, we don't even have a permanent CEO. I've got nothing against the appointment of the chief restructuring officer, but I would just say this, that somewhere along the line, we need technical skills within Eskom at the most senior level. It doesn't help if we just keep appointing another accountant after another accountant, mm -hmm. because a lot of Eskom's problem relates to simply the technical aspects of how you run power stations effectively. And I'm not convinced that's been addressed uh, at the moment. So we know we're not at that point where that would inspire confidence. I think Eskom is a topic which has hardly ever been off the agenda of this program. And I want to go back now to, to you, Karen. Um, you were talking about uh, how the Eskom unbundling, which has now long been promised, is not happening and you're not convinced it ever is going to happen if, if, if there's agreement on it at all. Well, I bought a PIA application to access, a, yeah, promotion of Access to Information Act, um, you know, just to access the report that had been done to get some insight into what the thinking was, because at the moment this entire issue is shrouded in secrecy. And I think that may have a lot to do with the kind of hold that unions have, the apprehension about potential retrenchments and what the restructuring could mean, and the fear that, you know, open and transparent dialogue about this could cause further strikes, further disruptions, further power cuts, which is a pattern that we've seen, you know. So, you know, but basically I was refused access to that report and it was sort of said that, you know, potentially it would be released later, but it wouldn't be released now. But in the absence of transparency about this, you know, it just looks very much like an, a plan that is literally a triage approach. We are like on the table, busy dying. People need to put on a, you know, like get electricity, pardon the pun, flowing through the veins of this thing. And everyone's sort of standing around going, they really did. I don't know. Um, you know, and then other guys like, no, you know, it's ridiculous. It's, it's this, it's the situation where the lack of coherent leadership, the fear of being, you know, the consequences of, of alienating unions or whoever is literally stopping us from dealing with our problems. And we're all going to end up in a massive crisis unless people acknowledge, including those people, because they will lose their jobs as a consequences of the kind of economic um, manifestations that this thing is going to cause. I wonder if it's as simple as jobs or more a whole range of because this is not just about unions I mean one one wonders if there's agreement on the way forward within government itself mm -hmm. well there clearly isn't, mm -hmm. isn't. Um, and Patrick I mean what sense do you get from say the Eskom announcement of whether we even there is even a way forward well I mean I think it's a charitable um, explanation to sort of lay it all on a fear of job losses because I think it's more I think it's deeper than that and there's mm -hmm. a, there's a kind of ideological project at play here and there's this mentality in the sense that that we can't leave something as important as the provision of electricity to the private sector yet we can leave food clothing shelter and all the other kind of fairly important things to the private sector so when we talk about a plan I mean uh, th this thing still has to go to Parliament Mm. And there's talk of a green paper. So what does the green paper contain this plan that, 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 that you've applied to sort of have access to? One doesn't know. So I think the ideological kind of mindset is so, it's so entrenched. And, and ESCOM is, is for, for, you know, is so, is so central to that, to, the, to a whole ideological outlook that's... Mm. In the ANC, and we talk about the unreconstructed elements of the ANC wanting to, 
for example, print money, misunderstand the mission of the Reserve Bank, and etc. And I think that faction, for want of a better word, is holding sway. And In the meantime, Kevin, we've had uh, Fitch, the rating agency, yes. put us on negative, negative from junk to more junk on, on yeah. last week. And um, yeah. questions about whether Moody's will move following the enormous bailout to Eskom. So, what, so, are, what, are, what is your call on, on how bad this will be for ratings? So right now, obviously, it's ratings negative. Moody's indicated that the bailout was ratings negative, although they'll only do at this stage a, an official review late in the year. This, I think it's scheduled for the 1st of November. Um, and obviously, they'll have a lot more information by the time they get there, including the state of government finances in the medium-term budget policy. But as it stands, it puts us at risk that Moody's will also take our ratings outlook from stable to negative. It's very unlikely that Moody's would take us to junk status. The reason is that currently our outlook for Moody's is stable, which means they would skip the negative outlook and go all the way to junk. Uh. Given how important the rating is, because then it takes the country over the cliff, over the cliff so to speak, <laughs> they are very mindful of that. So they, are, they have a huge amount of maturity when it comes to those types of ratings decisions. So mm. what they would do is put us on a negative outlook first before revising us fully to junk. I suspect that by November we'll be on a negative outlook. The thing that needs to happen in order for to stop that is that between now and November, government has to sit together with uh, the Chief Restructuring Officer, together with National Treasury, together with Department of Public Enterprises and the ratings agency, and explain and thrash out what is this plan to restructure Eskom. If they can put this plan on the table, and this plan seems workable, feasible, and it will result in a sustainable Eskom longer term, that potentially could encourage Moody's not to put us on a negative outlook. And what Moody says is they're waiting for that discussion. In the speech by the Minister of Finance, when he tabled the special appropriation bill, he said that that's the next part of this discussion. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we don't know what the plan is, right? And I'm assuming that we've got to wait for the chief restructuring officer to get up to speed, get the plan formulated, have a discussion with all the relevant parties, including the rating agency, and then see whether we can save the credit rating. That is a big stretch at this stage because clearly the deterioration continues on. And the other aspects that I think we need to understand are deteriorating. The first is tax revenue is falling well behind budget. Mm. Yesterday we got an update on the June tax numbers. I didn't really see it in the press. Mm. But this the is numbers, the monthly numbers the from monthly the Treasury numbers, about mm. taxes. I thought it was shocking, the June number. It's, the we June put us number. further behind in terms and of tax revenue. And June is not quite a big tax collection much for companies. So corporate taxes, that included a big increase in corporate tax revenue. Yet even with that, the numbers are significantly high, particularly corporate taxes, particularly VAT receipts, significantly behind. So we've got a revenue shortfall that's building up in the background. We haven't discussed the amount of money that SAA, Danel, uh, South African, uh, SABC has to get. That we think is in the order of 10 to 13 billion. On top of the Eskom, On top of the Eskom thing. Billion. So it's yes. not just about convincing the rating agencies that you've got a plan for Eskom. You have to convince the rating agencies that the revenue shortfall is going to be dealt with. You've got to convince the rating agencies that the bailout of the other SOEs is not an endless pit. So there's a lot of work between now and November to convince Moody's to keep giving us the space.
Now, when you look at S&P and Fitch, there's no doubt that Moody's is being generous with the rating. And there's nothing wrong with that. We'll take our luck where we can get it. But they can't continue on without a more concrete plan from Treasury, from Department of Enterprises on how we manage this. Uh, the the Eskom press conference did promise an Eskom paper within a month. Um, that was the number, that was the timeline that was mentioned. I mean, Karen, what, how, how high do you rate our chances of, of delivering the kind of outlook that Kevin says would be necessary to stable for I ratings? Mean, I just downgrade. think that there's, there's a need for transparency. At this point, we have, we're shooting in the dark. We don't know what's going on. And, you know, the, the thing is, is that, you know, this kind of no, we'll, we'll you know, further down the line, it's, we've just become a country that is constantly kicking the can down the road. The road is now at an end. There is no road. We can't kick it. So you either open that can or you move on. But this, I mean, it just frustrates me no end because I think as soon as we know what the plan and the strategy is, then that engagement can happen. But it's we can like talk about it. terrified. Yeah. We seem mm. to be terrified about the prospect of, of the conversation. And given the kind of level of debt, I mean, ESCOM is huge. It's the biggest debt that we have. It's not something we can ignore. It's literally the giant elephant that sits in our room on a daily basis. So the sooner we start saying, okay, what's the plan? What is it? What's going to happen? Who needs to engage? People start dealing with in a proactive situation. If you jump that stuff on particularly unions, employees, whatever, at the last minute, there's going to be chaos. We've seen not this to in mention the past. investors and investors, other stakeholders. Absolutely, yeah, so and we've in seen the meantime, this in the I'm going to move along from the public sector's woes to the private sector's <laughs> woes. Um, and this week's big news, uh, Patrick uh, Peter Moyo and Old Mutual, um, Old Mutual led by its chairman Trevor Manuel, fires yeah. Peter Moyo for yeah. a conflict of interest. Peter Moyo takes him to yeah. court, and he wins. And there he is apparently sitting in his office Absolutely. at Old Mitchell's headquarters this very morning. What, what sort of, I mean, without going into the rights and the wrongs of the case, how does this look for Trevor Manuel? How does this look for Old Mitchell? Well, I mean, the question has been raised about Trevor Manuel and, you know, uh, um, and obviously the whole Peter Moyo thing has become a bit of a, a bit of a showcase for the sort of success of, of uh, black empowerment, if you like at executive level mm. and um, you know fortunately again it seems the courts have sort of come to our rescue in that it's it's difficult to understand how a company of old mutual stature should end up with such a messy sort of situation where it seemed to be hounding out one of South Africa's top black executives um, you know the the, the smaller well, details of the black executives. Smaller yeah, details of the case, not but not so many at chief executive level, though. Well, absolutely. And I mean, there's two aspects to his court application. The first is where he was successful was to say, look, um, you know, he was removed in an illegal manner. It was a process case. Yeah, it was a process anything, issue, yeah. and it wasn't fair, it wasn't... Um, so he's won on that issue, the, you know, that sort of first mm. part A of his mm. relief. He's now returned to work pending the outcome of part B, which is far more uh, far-reaching for Old Mucha, because my understanding is he's seeking, you know, for the whole board, including Trevor Manuel, to, mm. to effectively be removed. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not just that he's back in office 
fold mutual. It's it's this challenge on the board. It's challenge on internal processes that they may not particularly want ventilated in a court of law. And there are, of course, political dimensions. We've seen the EFF taking very much backing Moyo, Advocate Dali and Porfu involved in this mm -hmm. case. So the political dimensions of this um, and the kind of, you know, the kind of attacks that have been particularly leveled by Moyo against Trevor Manuel, a longtime adversary of the EFF. I mean, this is a kind of nightmare for all mutual to be involved in because Kevin traffic alone is going to be terrible. Karen's sort of alluding to the bigger picture issues here. First of all, yeah. the governance issue, but also is it the case that sort of corporate life in South Africa has become quite poisonous? I mean, that the politics look, of it has become I, very I poisonous. I think it has, unfortunately. Which we've overlays seen any governance or, co or actual direct So if you stand issues. back from it, there have been a number of disputes in corporates that I think have become uh, problematic. Not all of them obviously have ended in court. And in Old Mutual's case, uh, it's done a lot of damage to obviously their share price, to people's confidence in Old Mutual. Old, Old Mutual would be regarded as a flagship blue chip company in South Africa, and it would be it would be re expected that they would go through the proper process. So for Old Mutual to miss something in terms of this, in term, uh, a process is unacceptable. And I think the share price is reflecting that. But I think more than that, it's saying to us, is there a, a, a bullying that's going on at a senior level? Or are we creating a, the right sort of environment for everybody with different aspects of political view, et cetera, to prosper. Mm, and, well, they, and have, they have appealed, so I think we're going to have to see the outcome of, of that appeal. Um, and that is unfortunately all we have time for, so please join us again next week for another edition of Editing Aloud.